This morning I want to show you from this passage how God extends his kingdom both across continents and across the street. God extends his kingdom to other places in the world and God extends his kingdom to other families in your neighborhood and how he does this. The reason you should care about this is because he extends his kingdom through people. His his work continues in the world through individuals, families, churches, and he can do it through you. Now, this seems to be one of a number of pivotal sections in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit seems to implement another phase in the mission of Jesus. If you remember back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And this here from Acts 7 into Acts 8, it seems like there's this pivot or we're entering into another phase of this mission of Christ in bearing witness or individuals bearing witness of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Up until now, the church had been huddled more or less in Jerusalem and Jesus said that these Christians would be witnesses to the ends of the earth, but, but they hadn't even left the headquarters yet. And so here in Acts chapter 8, we see them spreading out. With the martyrdom of Stephen, the church began to be hotly persecuted. Stephen was executed as part of this persecution. And then from there, there was this hot persecution against anyone who bore the name of Jesus Christ. And this persecution was led by a man named Saul. Now, we haven't heard of Saul yet, but you probably are aware that Saul is a pretty important figure in the book of Acts. Well, really, in in, in all of the New Testament. Saul is um, the guy who becomes Paul later and ends up taking the gospel to the ends of the Roman Empire. But in this passage, up until now, before he was converted, Paul was a sworn enemy of Christ and a sworn enemy of the church. We see in the opening words of our text that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. If we went back to Acts 7, as the people were rushing towards Stephen, this big crowd of people gnashing their teeth with stones in their hands, they were rushing toward him and stoning him. It says they laid their garments or their their robes aside at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul was there, It wasn't just that he passively approved of it. Saul was there, maybe even cheering it on, but he approved of it wholeheartedly. And it actually led, this led to a large-scale persecution of the church. In verse 3, it says that Saul was ravaging the church. The word to ravage means to, or describes a wild animal mangling its prey. And to ravage, this verb ravage is in the continuous, ten, in continu, continuous ten, uh, sense or tense. So in other words, Paul didn't go on a weekend raid against Christians, but he was on a deliberate, systematic, vengeful approach to wipe out the church anywhere he heard that people were gathering in Jesus' name. He entered house after house, dragging men and women to prison Later in life, Paul describes that his intentions for the church, his intentions for the church were to utterly 
destroy it. And Galatians chapter 1, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. I wanted to see it wiped out. Yet, amazingly, we see with this intense persecution, the church is far from snuffed out. In fact, it spreads more and more. Warren Wearsby in his commentary on Acts says this, Persecution does to the church what wind does to seed. It scatters it and only produces a greater harvest. This is certainly true in the book of Acts, and it has often been true in the history of the church ever since. Whether we go way back to Christian persecution under emperors like Nero and Diocletian, or more modern examples like the church in China, every time evil men seek to snuff it out, it only grows more and more. So how does God extend his kingdom? That's what we want to ask and answer today. How does God extend his kingdom in the world, across continents, and across the street? You might be thinking, I'm not going to go across the continent, but you can go across the street. How does God extend his kingdom in the world? Here's how. God strategically scatters ordinary Christians engaging in word and deed ministry to spread joy. That's what we see here. That's what we see in these verses here in Acts 8. God strategically scatters ordinary Christians, breathe a sigh of relief, ordinary people, right? Engaging in word, speaking, and deed, hands-on ministry in order to spread joy. That's the big idea from this passage. So what I want to do is just kind of walk through that phrase by phrase. Okay, and I hope by the end you see that this is massively relevant for you and I. So first phrase, God strategically scatters. You might say, why do you say God strategically scatters? The text simply says they were scattered. The reason I say God strategically strategically scatters, not just happens that the people were scattered, but God is involved. God strategically scatters. There's There's a couple of reasons why. First, the word scattered, which is used twice in verses 1 and 4, shows that there was intentionality or strategy involved in this scattering. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't, oh my goodness, well, shoot, there's persecution, people are running. Well, we'll just try to make the best of this. No, it wasn't that way at all. It was God's strategy, part of God's strategy. The Greek word translated scatter, diaspero, means to scatter seed. means to scatter seed. In other words, the people who were scattered, though they may have initially thought they were just running for their lives, part of God's strategy to scatter seed wherever they went. And that's exactly what they did, right? They were scattered in order to be planted. What did they do when they were scattered? It tells us in verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
I mean, could you imagine? You get your family, right? Saul is on a rampage. You gather your family. Kids, honey, we've got to get out of town. And you run away from Jerusalem. And as you go, wherever you go, you begin to scatter the seed about Jesus. That's what these people were doing. Everywhere they went, they were preaching the word about Jesus. At a certain point, these men and women seemed to realize that the scattering out of Jerusalem was actually a sending from God into other places. The Christians who were scattered from Jerusalem were God's seed, which he planted in new soil in order to bear fruit. We see that some went to Judea. So you had Jerusalem down here. Judea was the region just north of Jerusalem. Some went into the region of Judea. Some went further north to Samaria. And some, we'll see later in Acts 11, from the persecution of Steve, after Stephen's death, went much further, even as far as Antioch. They were displaced from their homes, and yet as they went, they went with a purpose. They spoke the message of Christ. Michael Green, in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, says that the pro- proclamation or the preaching here probably wasn't you know, like a, an organized, formal gathering like this, but he said, as the Christians went, he used this phrase, they gossiped the gospel. They just chattered about Jesus everywhere they went. But also notice the regions that verse 1 says they were scattered into. I mentioned it just a moment ago, Judea and Samaria. Back in Acts 8, or excuse me, 1 verse 8, probably the central verse in all the book of Acts, it sets the stage for the entire book. Jesus promises. It's not so much a command, maybe secondarily, but primarily Jesus promises power when the Holy Spirit comes and he promises you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see the Holy Spirit like implementing phase two in the mission of Christ. He's sending people into Judea and Samaria. They're scattered, but they're speaking of Jesus. They are bearing witness of Jesus Christ. God strategically scatters. Now, isn't it interesting that we can go through our lives almost every day, scattered here and there and everywhere, without much thought that there's any strategy to it? I'm not saying strategy on your part, but without any thought that there is a divine strategy to our scattering. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, some families probably need to stop doing so much. But we scatter so many different places, don't we? We go to work and some go to school and some go to the park and the grocery store and kids' appointments and the ball fields and all of these different places. Is there any sense in your mind that there's any strategy to this? That God is scattering us throughout the week into all these different places. What if you had this perspective that God was scattering you throughout the week 
And even through hard providences, in order that you might gossip the gospel to whoever he places you around. We were praying Wednesday night up here at the church and two examples that came out of our Wednesday night prayer that I guess I'd been thinking about these things, but just seemed like such clear examples of this. One, David Janicek was sharing just prayer for a young man that, that when he was working at his previous job, he was able to reach out to and chatter the gospel to, gossip the gospel to, asked us to pray for him. And it just made me think, you know, that previous job David had was not a job he would have chosen. He had lost his other job. It was a hard providence. And yet God strategically had him there for a season to gossip the gospel to this young man. Carmen Herbal was telling us as well to be praying for a young lady she had reached out. I don't know if she's young or not, I guess. A lady she'd reached out to as she was getting her nails done. She was just, she'd gone to this nail salon just going to sit back and relax and let this person give her a pedicure, a manicure, whatever. And one thing led to another. Before she knew it, they were in this deep conversation with a, with a lady who needed to hear about Christ. That's how he scatters us. A nail salon. A job we wouldn't have chosen. A circumstance we find ourselves in. The grocery store. The park. The ball fields. Right? The baseball fields. We're, we're waist deep and we'll be neck deep before long in baseball for Silas. And I'm intentionally trying to meet the other parents. It's much more comfortable just to stay to myself and, and do my thing. But I'm intentionally trying to meet the parents seeing how God might open up an opportunity to, gospel the go- to gossip the gospel to them. So God strategically scatters, number two, ordinary Christians, just ordinary people. Now, in one sense, it's a little tongue-in-cheek because there's no ordinary person, right? I mean, image bearers of God, they're anything but ordinary in one sense, But in another sense, what I mean is just not especially gifted, charismatic, strong, powerful, famous. Just ordinary Christians. God strategically scatters ordinary Christians. Verse 1 says, They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, listen to this, except the apostles. So all the people that you'd never heard of before, Right? The apostles, the names you know, the household names, Peter, John, James, etc., they stayed in Jerusalem. The rest were scattered. Now, we, we know one guy's name from our story, and we're going to look at him more carefully in just a bit, but all these other people that were scattered, many of them, men and women and their families, they were scattered. We don't know any of their names. They were just ordinary people. And yet they were the evangelists who took the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Though many Christians were scattered and spoke about Jesus, Luke focuses on a guy named Philip. And you might say, ah, Philip, okay, well, he must have been a stud, right? I mean, he must have been the man. Like, he was just this amazing guy chosen for this special task. He was chosen for this task. But Philip was an ordinary guy. 
We, see, we don't know much about Philip. We see him in Acts 6, where his name is just mentioned. That's it. We see him here in Acts 8, where he's one of the main characters in this chapter. And then we don't see him until Acts 21. And, and again, all we, we, just, we just get little glimpses of who this guy was. But one thing we know in Acts 6 is that he was anointed for ministry. But do you know what ministry he was anointed for? The, the really important ministry of serving tables. And, and it is a really important ministry, but not perhaps one you would think. He was anointed for serving tables. Stephen, Philip, and five other guys. And so Philip is, he's just an ordinary guy. God using ordinary men and women I think is a great theme in the Bible. God using a guy like Abraham. In Genesis 12, we know nothing about Abraham other than he comes from a pagan family and it just says, God said to Abraham, leave this place and go to another place. That's like, what? Abram? God using Abraham, God using Sarah, God using these two together, these old barren people to start his worldwide family through them. God using someone like Moses, who when God came to him and said, I'm going to use you, Moses, to lead my people out of Egypt. Moses says, I can't even put two sentences together. I stutter. I can't talk well. Maybe he was stuttering even as he said these words to God. God loves to use people like that. Someone like Gideon, right? An angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. Gideon's kind of hiding like, you know, behind a tree or something. And, and, and the angel of the Lord says to him, there you are, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like looking around thinking, who's this angel talking to? Because Gideon was not in himself mighty and not a man of valor. Someone like Hannah, who was a barren woman, and yet God gifted her to give birth to Samuel, the first of the prophets. Someone like David. We think of David. Yeah, but you know, he was a man after God's own heart. Yeah, but he was not outwardly impressive. He was the youngest of Jesse's sons. When, when Samuel came to you know, anoint a king and he looked at all the sons except for David, he says, you have another son? And Jesse said, no, I don't have another. Not someone you'd be interested in. It was David. Why does God do this? I mean, look at, think of the apostles. They were all uneducated men. Except for Paul later. But all the rest of them, just uneducated, normal laborers, just normal guys. Why does God do this? Because God wants to spread his name and his fame and not yours and not mine and not Philip's and not Moses's and not Abraham's because his name is glorious and not yours and not mine and not Abraham's and not Moses's and not Philip's. His name is glorious. His fame is what people long to see. He is the desire of nations. God is through Jesus Christ. And so he loves using ordinary, just normal people, unimpressive in and of themselves so that he is seen and it is clear that he is the glorious one. He is the one worthy of worship. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 
verses 27 to 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And here's the kicker. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God use ordinary, ordinary people so we don't look in the mirror and boast in ourselves, which we, are all, which we are often tempted to do? We don't look at someone else and boast in them. So we boast in the Lord alone. This is such good news for us because we're just a bunch of ordinary people. I mean, at the end of the day, why fill up? Two reasons. One is the sheer grace of God. The sheer, we, God in his sovereign will just decided, I'm going to use this guy. And two, because he had the powerful indwelling Holy Spirit at work in him. So God scatters strategically ordinary Christians. Number three, engaging in word and deed ministry. Look at verses 5 to 7 and the ministry of Philip. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many of them and many who were paralyzed or lame, were healed. Verse 1 or verse 4 says, all of these people that went, they preached the word. But here it says, Philip proclaimed Christ, which means he preached the gospel. He preached about the perfect life, the atoning, perfect death of Jesus, his resurrection, preached the gospel of Jesus. But then it also says he performed exorcisms and cast evil spirits out of people like Jesus did. Cast evil spirits out of people. He healed people. God used him to bring healing, not just to one guy, not just a partial healing to one guy, but many who were paralyzed and lame. Many of them were healed. This shouldn't surprise us. This was the pattern of Jesus' ministry all throughout the Gospels. We see this over and over and over again. Jesus preached and he healed and delivered and set people free. He had a word ministry and he came with deep compassion for the needs of the people that he was ministering to. He didn't just have a word ministry. He didn't just teach, but he also didn't just heal. In fact, interesting, it's very interesting. Mark chapter 6, verse 34, it says, motivated by compassion, he looked out over this crowd of people and he, and he, and he just had this compassionate heart for them. And he, it says that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And what did he do? He taught them many things. He spoke many words to them. He wanted to communicate the gospel to them. He spoke God's word to them. But then in another text, the wording is almost the same. 
Great compassion. Looked out over the people, had compassion for them. And what did he do? Matthew 14, he healed all their sick. Moved by compassion. Jesus and Philip walking in his master's footsteps has a speaking ministry where he proclaims the gospel and he has a deed ministry or mercy ministry where he's compassion for people's aches and pains and diseases and sorrows and lack and loves them and serves them there as well. This is also the pattern in the gospels for the disciples when Jesus sent them out. Think of like Matthew 10, Luke 9, Luke 11. It's also a common pattern in the book of Acts. In just a handful of chapters in Acts 14, it says Paul and Barnabas. So Saul from this passage, he becomes Paul. Paul and Barnabas are in a place called Iconium. And it says they stayed there a long time teaching. And the Lord granted them healing and miracles to confirm what they taught. And now here, Philip, who was not an apostle, he was an ordinary guy, is used in extraordinary ways. Preaching Christ, demonstrating God's heart of compassion toward those who suffer. But notice what verse 6 says. It says the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. The people paid attention when they heard the message and saw the signs. It seems like the signs were given again to confirm the message. Miracles don't save anybody, right? But they can give a hearing. They can awaken people to the reality that God is here. And this this man who's speaking this message about this Jesus, we want to give him a hearing. And I think that's the way the Spirit used these miracles through Philip. Now, some might ask, well, why don't we see these things like this anymore today? Or why don't... It doesn't seem like we do. We might hear stories here and there, and maybe over in other countries where, where there are missionaries going into frontier places bringing the gospel to unreached peoples, we might hear some things like this, but we just don't see, we don't hear much like, of, of things like this happening. And I don't know that I have a, a perfect answer. I do know that it's possible. I do know that God is the same. I do believe the Spirit of God that was working through Well, through Jesus, right? Jesus was filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove at his baptism. That worked through through Jesus, that worked through Peter, that worked through John, that worked through Philip, that later will work through Paul and many others in the book of Acts, is the same Spirit who indwells every blood-bought follower of Christ. And I also don't see why we would be any less in need of obvious demonstrations of power now that the apostles are than the apostles needed back then. So, in my view, the prayer of Acts 4 seems like it should still be our prayer. And here's what they prayed in Acts 4. God, give us boldness to continue to speak your word. While you stretch out your hand, 
and heal and do miracles through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That should be our prayer. As we are reaching out to people, God, I'm, I'll, give me courage to speak to this person. I just pray that you would do, do a miracle here. I mean, the greatest miracle, rip out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, right? But any other miracle that God may be pleased to do. So God strategically scatters ordinary Christians engaging in word and deed ministry. Here's the last, number four, to spread joy. To spread joy. I love verse eight. I love verse eight. It says this, so there was great joy in that city. Well, I guess so. My goodness. Jesus preached, demons cast out, lame and paralytics raised up to perfect health. I could see why there's joy in that city. It says so, or you could put therefore, there was much joy or great joy in that city. Delivered from physical affliction, demonic oppression, and most importantly, their sins. No wonder there was joy. No wonder there was joy. I love the way the New American Standard puts this verse. It it puts the emphasis on the verb form of rejoicing. It says there was much rejoicing in that city. So it wasn't just that they had stagnant joy, like this hidden joy, you know, we got this joy that no one can see. It's like, no, they were rejoicing. They They were talking about it. They maybe looked happy on their faces, right? I mean, maybe a smile on their face. Maybe they even yelled and screamed at how happy they were. There was much rejoicing in that city. This is what happens when Jesus comes to town. But here's the thing. This is what happens when Jesus comes to our homes. Your home. This is what happens when Jesus invades our hearts. Much rejoicing. Much rejoicing. Forgiveness of sins. Demonic powers overthrown. The compassion of Jesus taking up residence in our hearts. This is what happens. Much joy. Great joy. Rejoicing. Even with a loud voice. This is what happens in a town or in a city or in a region when the church sees its purpose as well. Because where did this joy come from? Well, it came from the gospel. It came from... Jesus, right? Jesus was brought to this town, but who brought Jesus to this town? Who brought the gospel? Just an ordinary guy, strategically scattered by God, engaging in word and ministry, word and deed ministry. Joy to our homes, our neighborhoods, and city in the power of the Spirit because the gospel that we love, the gospel that has transformed our lives. So how does God extend his kingdom? Well, again, by strategically scattering ordinary Christians. Don't look at someone else like you. Engaging in word and deed ministry 
spreading joy. This is our amazing privilege. This is our wonderful privilege. Whatever you may think about the Christian life, and maybe you look around, you're like, that just looks like a drag, it looks boring, it looks like mostly a, a religion that you just say no to a lot of stuff. When you read Acts 8, it is not that. It is people full of God, the Holy Spirit, seeking to bring the message and the demonstration that he is real, that he is alive to others. So let let me just end this way. I want to give you four, very quickly, four things I want you to do. This is a pivotal text in Acts, when the church is led out of Jerusalem, when they are scattered out of Jerusalem. And I think it could be a pivotal text and pivotal message for some, maybe all here. Okay? If you tend to be someone, maybe like the, the Christians in Jerusalem, it just kind of stays to yourself. Maybe this is a pivotal passage for you and how God wants to help you see that he is scattering us, ordinary people, to engage in word and deed ministry to bring joy. So four things, and I got this nice acronym for you, okay? ASAP. And I want you to do this ASAP. I don't want you to wait till later this week. I want you to do it. Okay, I know you're going to be with your moms or going to do something after church, but I want you to do this. Let's do it right now. And then continue later. ASAP. Acknowledge, seek, acquire, prepare. First, acknowledge. Acknowledge your ordinariness. Just acknowledge it. Don't fight against that. Like, no, I really am amazing. I really am special. I really am extra cool or whatever. Don't fight against. We're just ordinary. We're just ordinary. Now, I don't mean accept or acknowledge that you're lazy or ignorant or immature. I don't mean that, okay? Not, don't excuse sin like those things, but just ordinary. It's okay. God loves that you're ordinary. He loves that. Your ordinariness is no hindrance to God. In fact, quite the opposite. If you insist on being something other than ordinary, you actually work against what God wants to do. You and I are ordinary, but God is extraordinary. And that's the way it's supposed to be, so he gets the glory. So acknowledge, your, acknowledge the fact that you, you are ordinary. Let's do this together. We are we're ordinary. Number two, seek. So acknowledge, seek. Seek continually to be filled with the Spirit. Philip was ordinary, but he was a man full of the Spirit. That's what Acts 6.3 says. He was a man full of the Spirit, and that's the key. He was ordinary. The Holy Spirit is anything but ordinary. A man or woman really convinced and okay that they are ordinary, yet filled with the glorious and blessed Holy Spirit, that's an explosive combination. So seek continually. The reason I say continue is because that's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled, and the idea is be filled and keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's what I would say. Don't settle 
for anything less. Okay? We all receive the Holy Spirit when we're born again. We do, right? That's how we're born again. We're born again by the Spirit. But Paul assumes that Christians, not every Christian, is always filled with the Spirit. So seek continually to be filled with the Spirit. And even start right now. Number three, acquire deep, abiding joy in the gospel. Can you imagine, I mean, this is an oxymoron, I get it, but could you imagine someone saying, someone that is just normally just grumpy and just down in the dumps, how do they communicate Christ? How does that happen? Were they begrudgingly saved? No. Joyfully saved. Mercifully saved by our amazing Savior. So acquire real, deep, abiding joy in the gospel. You cannot spread the joy that you do not have. You just can't. If there's little or no no joy in Christ and in the gospel, I just urge you, I mean, maybe the Spirit's doing something right now, just kindling that, but get alone with God. Get alone with God and cry out like David when he said in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Be like George Mueller who wrote in his autobiography. I love this. Listen to what George Mueller said. He says, the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. He goes on to say, the first thing to be concerned with is how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. Acquire real, deep, satisfying joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And number four, prepare so acknowledge your ordinary, that your ordinary seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit continually, acquire deep, abiding, real joy in the gospel, and four, prepare. Prepare to be scattered throughout the week to various places among various people in order to spread the joy of Christ through the power of the Spirit. I love, you know, Paul, Peter says in his letter, he says, prepare your minds for action. And that's kind of the idea I want to give you. Sunday evening, prepare yourself. Tomorrow, I'm going to be scattered. And it's going to be a busy week, and I'm going to be scattered here and there and everywhere, among certain people, different places. And just prepare your mind and ask God for help to chatter about Jesus, to gossip the gospel wherever you go to whomever you are around. This is how God extends his kingdom. Strategically scattering ordinary Christians, engaging in word and deed ministry to spread joy. Let's pray. Father, as we go here today, we again celebrate mothers. And as we go to lunch or go home and bless our moms, I pray that we would keep this in mind, 
that you want to spread your work, you want to spread the gospel, the message of Jesus, your compassionate works, just through ordinary people like us. And so help us today to receive this. I pray you take it deeper into our hearts that we would indeed acknowledge we're just ordinary, that you would give us a hunger and a thirst to seek after the fullness of your spirit day and night, that we'd long to be filled and and walk in the power of the spirit, that we would acquire a deep joy in the gospel and that we would be prepared as we go and scatter throughout Ankeny and Des Moines and this area for various reasons to rub shoulders with and give people words of hope and life through Christ. In his name I pray, amen. All right, may you go in the blessing of the Lord and his peace and the power of the Spirit. You're dismissed.